We are in Judges chapter 19. We've been working our way through the book of Judges, and to kind of review, one of the things we've seen is that God's people, the Israelites, go through a cycle, a cycle, maybe a well-loved cycle that we've talked about many times, written on the board in the past. Do we remember what that cycle is? Here's the real test. After months of not gathering, do we remember what this cycle is? Someone who I'd probably ask isn't here today, but that's okay. I'll refresh you. The cycle that the Israelites went through during the time of the Judges is first it was apostasy. Apostasy in that they turned away from God. They worshipped false gods. The next step in the cycle was Oppression. Oppression. God sent an enemy nation. We saw lots of those enemy nations, the Midianites, the Philistines, Moabites, Canaanites. God would send enemy nations, use them to oppress his people, to bring hardship on his people so that they would turn back to him. And that's often what we saw. That it wasn't until the oppression came that then the Israelites remembered the Lord. Then they cried out to him. And God would give them deliverance. He'd give them deliverance, oftentimes using a judge. A ruler that he'd raise up for the specific purpose of bringing his people out of the hands of enemies. And they would lead his people for a period of time Some of those judges that we saw, Othniel, he was the boring one. There wasn't much written about him in Scripture. And we said that sometimes being boring is a good thing, as we looked at some of the other judges and saw not-so-great characteristics, even though God used them for deliverance. We saw Ehud, the left-handed judge, the one who used his slyness, Deceptiveness to deliver God's people. We saw Deborah and Barak working together. And the times when Barak wasn't stepping up, Deborah showed leadership. We saw Gideon. Gideon, who asked God for multiple signs to give him reassurance. God gave him multiple signs beyond what he even asked. And we saw that deliverance did come from the Lord through Gideon against the Midianites in their camp with 300 Israelites with jars and torches and shouting. We saw Samson. That was the last one we had looked at. Samson, coincidentally, that was what was just one of the lessons this past weekend, what Pastor Graham preached on. And we see that how God used a flawed man, very much, a man who fell into temptation, but God still used him for deliverance. And I encouragement that there is, God uses flawed people. That we don't try to be flawed, we don't try to fall into sin, but the power of God is greater than us. He not only uses for deliverance, but he delivers those individuals by directing them back to him in faith. Those were the judges we had seen. 
And then the last two chapters we had looked at so long ago, we had moved away and shifted from judges as individuals to events that characterize this period of judges. And it's something we've mentioned along the way, an important thing to remember. The book of Judges, just like all the rest of Scripture, is not just an account saying this is what happened. It is not just history. That's not God's purpose in giving any of his word. It's not God's purpose in giving us the book of Judges. But what we see is this decline, this moral decline, this spiritual decline of God's people and how he delivers them from that. That's the most important deliverance that comes, not the physical ones from the enemy nations, but almost a deliverance, you'd say, from yourself, from your own sinful nature, from your own idolatry, from putting up someone else usually yourself, in your heart to be king, God delivers from that as the ultimate king. And so what we saw in the previous two chapters is we saw an issue of this man named Micah who was a Levite who kind of set up his own little worship as he was hired out by other people to be their personal priest. And we see this deviation away, this apostasy in a different form from worshiping God how he commanded, how he desires. I should mention right here, the last one in our fourth cycle was rest. We saw that about halfway through the book of Judges, and then it just kind of stops. And so the chapters before this, we saw Micah doing that, and then we also saw the tribe of Dan, once again, deviating. It's apostasy in a different form, as they are now seeking out a different area of land to live in, taking it into their own hands. What God had promised to them, and what for centuries God had promised this land, it wasn't good enough for them. It wasn't what they wanted. God must not have had it right. And so they took matters into their own own hands. We see these chapters, chapters 17, 18, 19, 20, to the end of Judges as being characterizations of the spiritual nature of the Israelites throughout the period of Judges. These events don't take place sequentially. As we looked at the Judges, those individuals, yeah, those fell in a timeline one after another. But now these last chapters are more individual events taken through this period of 350 years during the Judges to describe to us that spiritual decline, this apostasy in a different form, more internal, more within Israel than what we see it on the outside. That gets us to Judges chapter 19. And we're going to start here. And it is an interesting chapter. It is maybe a little gruesome. One we probably don't typically include in our Bible lessons with children. But that should not be a reason to all of a sudden now 
back away from it because God has an important message for us. And I think we also need to be careful, too, as we look at this. It can be easy to simply say, wow, that's really bad. How could they have ever done that? To not have those biases in mind, but simply kind of dig more and see what is God showing us about the sinful nature and what it does. What is he communicating to us? And so we begin Judges chapter 19. In those days, Israel had no king. I'm just going to pause there for a second. Those first words set the tone. We've seen these words before throughout Judges. God is reminding by repeating here, the problem is not that they had no king, but recognize the situation. There is no king. It's anarchy in a sense because they are not being ruled. They're not letting themselves be ruled by God himself who is their king. It's not just that they had no physical king. They didn't have a spiritual king either. Really they did, but they weren't listening, obeying him. In those days, Israel had no king. Now a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Now she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem, Judah. After she had been there four months, her husband went to her to persuade her to return. He had with him his servant and two donkeys. She took him into her parents' home, and when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. His father-in-law, the woman's father, prevailed on him to stay, so he remained with him three days, eating and drinking and sleeping there. How many things are wrong in these first few verses? What a mess. This is now the description of what Israel is like. What a mess. You have this Levite, and it can be easy for us as we read along to think, okay, well, the first problem is, all right, he's got a concubine. But he already has a problem before that. He already has a problem before that. Now, a Levite who lived in a remote area. Why is he living in a remote area? That's not where the Levites live. God had given special cities to the Levites. We had seen those in the book of Joshua. He's not where he's supposed to be. That's a problem. He's in this hill country of Ephraim, and then, okay, he took a concubine from Bethlehem. All right, problem number two. Problem number two, he took a concubine. So what does that mean? Well, God doesn't say he took a wife. Now, taking a concubine was taking a woman into a kind of relationship as husband and wife, but that means that there is another wife in the picture, too. And so all of a sudden, God's gift of marriage is just being trampled on here. Not to mention that, okay, then for this woman, too, as being labeled a concubine, she's lesser. That it's not even that it's an equal relationship there, looked down upon. It's that 
this concubine is pretty much in his mind. She's there to serve him. She's for his benefit. That's the relationship position. More problems to come. But she was unfaithful to him. I wonder why. I wonder why. Now, that doesn't excuse it. That does not excuse it. That's a problem, too. And we see that sin just grows. Sin grows and grows and grows. She left him and went back to her parents. Okay? She's there for four months. And then he decides, yeah, now it's about time to go get her back. You have to question priorities, obviously. Okay, if your spouse leaves for, leaves for four months, would it take you four months? What does that say about your relationship? For him, it was not something of importance. Not a big deal. It was very much, oh, okay, she left. Well, four months later, eh, I think I want her back. All in again, all about himself. Sin serves oneself. Sin serves oneself. He goes back, and you know, we get a description here that, oh, yes, we got a question first. Please. Good question we have here. The question about her unfaithfulness. Was she unfaithful in that she committed adultery? Or was she unfaithful by desertion? By abandoning him and leaving for her parents? How it's described here is essentially that she was just unfaithful. That would seem to suggest through adultery. That would seem now the con- then all of a sudden she does up and leave. Um, and so maybe there is perhaps some questions there. And maybe, maybe we might be cautious to say she for sure committed adultery. Maybe it was just unfaithful in that she abandoned him. But I think the, for sure what we do have to come down and say in this, Scripture does not leave a wiggle room whether she was innocent. And I think that's important. I don't know if we can say for sure exactly the form of her unfaithfulness. Um, the term is what would, you normally would be for adultery. But you see, always look at terms in context. Always read in current context. And so there possibly could be, okay, just by leaving. But she is not innocent. And so as much as we are going to see all the sins of this Levite and see what his sins produce, don't forget her either. And that's something, maybe an important application to sins like to interact with each other. Sins interact. Sometimes our sins can push people into other sin, but also it's, you think of maybe an argument that people have. And the more one person yells, well, the louder the next person's going to yell. And so sin reacts after one another. Doesn't have to be that way. Doesn't have to be. But sin likes to grow in that way. Another question.
And so the question there, too, is we're really kind of going at the concubine relationship and recognizing it's more than just the sexual union between husband and wife. It's recognizing, too, that that union encompasses every aspect of life and living as far as management and house and responsibilities and caring for and whether it's children, bodily needs, all that stuff. And to recognize, too, that comes part of as well when that term concubine. It was not this we are combined, united together in doing this, not one flesh in that way, but no, it's lower. You're serving me. You're serving me. We have the Levite then coming, and he brings his servant and two donkeys, and it perhaps may remind you of a different scene of someone we know well from the Old Testament, from Genesis, sending off his servant with properly packed animals, perhaps gifts, supplies to go, in that case, find a wife for someone. Perhaps you're recalling Abraham sending his servant to go find a wife for Isaac. And the servant, you know, watering watering the animals, and that's where he finds Rebecca. This situation is very different. It looks similar in some ways, but very different, as now this Levite's going back to try to retain, regain his concubine, not called wife. And it almost maybe surprises you, even the reaction of this woman's father, and perhaps even took the Levite by surprise, too, because, all right, he's packed supplies and maybe seemed like, all right, this is, might be a little work. It's not going to be some quick stay. It's not going to be, all right, easy negotiations. I'm going to have to provide for myself. But he gets there and he's welcome with open arms. Welcome with open arms. Come, stay. Provide for you. Here, let me show you hospitality. And you can understand, maybe when you think about it in this way, of what a disgrace it would have been upon that father for his family of the situation. Perhaps it doesn't mean he's necessarily acting the right way, but the disgrace of all of a sudden now, his daughter was unfaithful. And she's separated now from him. Wouldn't it be nice to just make a quick fix and go on our way? And so, she, so he welcomes. And trying to show lots of hospitality, too, of even almost urging to stay multiple, multiple times. And after staying then for three days, we get to our next set of verses. On the fourth day, they got up early, and he prepared to leave. But the woman's father said to his son-in-law, Refresh yourself with something to eat, then you can go. So the two of them sat down to eat and to drink together. Afterward, the woman's father said, Please stay tonight and enjoy yourself. And when the man got up to go, his father-in-law persuaded him, so he stayed there that night. On the morning of the fifth day, when he rose to go, the woman's father said, Refresh yourself, wait till afternoon. So the two of them ate together. Don't go quite yet. Just hold on. Stick around for a little while. No need to rush. 
once again, maybe you're recalling when Abraham's servant went to go get a wife for Isaac, Rebecca. They were in no rush to send Rebecca on their way either. Once again, I think maybe we can relate. Okay, this is the man's daughter. It's already been a sour situation leading up to this. You'd like to, yes, resolve it, but doesn't need to be so quickly turn around, flip the switch, and be on our way. You could also then perhaps understand, we got a question, please. The question is about the father's response to his daughter being unfaithful. Is this something he just accepted? Scripture does not give us much insight, much window. In it. But something to keep in mind too is what, does, what did God's law say about a woman who had committed adultery? She was to be stoned. That is what was supposed to be. That was the punishment. And so, not only for perhaps our rights that's really what should happen. Well, clearly that's not happening at this time. And that's really no surprise considering the rest of the situation of how things are in Israel. But the shame, the disgrace, you see maybe the father's heart's not really in the right place either as he doesn't seem to be really concerned about actually addressing the issues of the marriage. And I think that's an important application. You know, which ones we see still today. Marriage has been, has been on attack since the Garden of Eden, it remains on attack. And when we, see, when we see, or perhaps we have experiences close to us, experience ourselves with issues of marriage, to not just try to address and fix the symptom. That seems to be what the Father is doing here. Let's fix the symptom. The symptom is they are separated. The symptom is that that means that I'm shamed as my family. And so if we just show a lot of hospitality, play nice, put a smile on our face, and get back together, we're all good, right? Not so. Not so. I think that's an important encouragement then for us that as Satan attacks marriages, and he attacks them hard, to... Get to the issue. It's a spiritual, spiritual issue here. A spiritual issue of really pretty much everyone involved. And that's where we need to be focused on. Not just trying to make things look good, but to address things so that we can actually find the problems and let God's word make things good through forgiveness, through repentance. He urges him to stay for a while, and this is maybe a little backwards to what we may experience with things. You've got to be careful to not overstay your welcome. Now this man is trying to get out from someone overwelcoming him. Overwelcoming him to extend that he feel obligated to stay. And that's really how the culture was. And there are other cultures around the world that are more like this than ours. 
that it's this overabundance of hospitality that may to us even at times feel overboard. That you kind of just want to escape from it. And so what does the man do? Let's look at our next verses. Verse 9. Then when the man with his concubine and his servant got up to leave, his father-in-law, the woman's father, said, Now look, it's almost evening. Spend the night here. The day is nearly over. Stay and enjoy yourself. Early tomorrow morning you can get up and be on your way home. But unwilling to stay another night, the man left and went toward Jebus, that is Jerusalem, with his two saddled donkeys and his concubine. When they were near Jebus, and the day was almost gone, the servant said to his master, Come, let's stop at the city of the Jebusites and spend the night. His master replied, No, we won't go into any city whose people are not Israelites. We will go on to Gibeah. He added, Come, let's try to reach Gibeah or Ramah and spend the night in one of those places. So they went on, and the sun set as they neared Gibeah in Benjamin. There they stopped to spend the night. They went and sat in the city square, but no one took them in for the night. That evening, an old man from the hill country of Ephraim, who was living in Gibeah, the inhabitants of the place were Benjaminites, came in from his work in the fields. When he looked and saw the traveler in the city square, the old man asked, Where are you going? Where did you come from? And so this Levite now all of a sudden staying longer than he really intended after his father-in-law has been playing, using the same line over and over, oh, it's getting late, stay another night. He said, nope, enough's enough. We're leaving, we're leaving now. Doesn't matter what time it is. This is not the normal time they would have started out to travel. But nope, it's time to go. Time to go. And he packs up everything with his donkeys, takes, notice how it's called again, his concubine. That hasn't changed. That hasn't changed. That's still the relationship. There are still major issues in this marriage. And they're on their way, and they're going to Jebus, which would be later called Jerusalem. Jebus at this time, and so as, as it says here, is not controlled by the Israelites. That's something we had seen earlier in the chapters as the Israelites were supposed to conquer. Well, one of the places they did not conquer and drive out, among many, was Jerusalem. Was Jerusalem. It would not be until King David that these Jebusites would be eradicated, that they'd be removed, that Israel would take complete control. And so he gets there and he's like, no, I'm not going to stay here. They're foreigners. They're not my own people. It seems reasonable. Reasonable. Go among your own people because you're looking for hospitality. You're going to be re reliant upon others to take you in to spend the night. So just keep in mind now, he has left a home where he had complete hospitality to the extreme, a place to stay, and now he's going to go and he's going to be dependent upon others for a place to stay. He's left that behind. And he gets to, he gets to Gibeah. And the sun is setting. And so what do they do? They sit in the city square. 
they're out there, the center of the city, essentially sitting there waiting and saying, hopefully someone will come and offer. You see that they're a traveler, hoping the city shows hospitality. That was culturally the norm, the expectation, especially among your own people there, that if a visitor's coming, someone's got to welcome them in. You don't sit out, you don't sleep in the city square. Because it, if you did, really, that's a sign that your city is not showing any hospitality. It's a disgrace upon your own town. And so then this old man from Ephraim, not actually from the city of Gibeah, he is there, and he sees them and asks, what are you doing? Common question, all right, they're sitting in the square. What's, where are you from? Where are you going? Verse 18. He answered, we are on our way from Bethlehem in Judah to a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim where I live. I have been to Bethlehem in Judah, and now I am going to the house of the Lord. No one has taken me in for the night. We have both straw and fodder for our donkeys, and bread and wine for ourselves and servants. Me, the woman, and the young man with us. We don't need anything. You are welcome at my house, the old man said. Let me supply you whatever you need. Only don't spend the night in the square. So he took him into his house and fed his donkeys. After they had washed their feet, they had something to eat and to drink. The old man, the one who is not actually a resident of the town, is the one who shows hospitality. And how often we see that in Scripture, that the people who have the responsibility to show hospitality don't, but some foreigner does. Prime example right there is the Good Samaritan. He brings him in. Now, take a close look, too, on how this Levite describes the situation. The old man asks, where are you going? Where did you come from? And the man doesn't really tell him what all has been going on. No, doesn't necessarily mean he had the obligation to do that, but just to see how it's described here, that... We're going to the hill country of Ephraim, where I live. I've been to Bethlehem. I'm going to the house of the Lord. Oh, well, that's something new. So now, after going back and getting your runaway concubine, that you've decided now you're going to go to the house of the Lord. Is it perhaps an act of worship, act of a right reconciliation? Who knows? But he does say he's going to go to the house of the Lord now. It's interesting when we see how the rest of the chapter unfolds, that that was his intent. And it, I think, raises the issue of, okay, intent on doing one thing, but then doing something else that's completely contrary to it. You're going to go to the house of the Lord. Well, what were you going to do there? Worship? Worship doesn't just happen in the house of the Lord. Worship happens with how we live our lives. And we're going to see that this man certainly does not worship with how he lives his life. He doesn't go to the house of the Lord really in any way. He describes also, too, who is with him? Me, the woman. The woman. 
and the young man with us. Okay, keep that in mind. That's how he described her to the old man. What the old man says, as well as to why he's welcoming their home, foreshadows significantly. He said, only don't spend the night in the square. Only don't spend the night in the square. Now, yes, it would have been a disgrace upon the town, but ultimately that old man, what did he have from that? He wasn't even from there. He was a foreigner. That wasn't his concern or responsibility. But he says, don't spend the night in the town because as we're going to see, the old man knows what kind of town he lives in. Verse 22, while they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, no, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this outrageous thing. Look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now, and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But as for this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. Does it appall you? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think maybe the most difficult part, what's the most appalling part of it? Just as we began the chapter, so many problems. There are so many appalling things here. So many appalling things. The men of the city. As that man sat in the city square, not a single one of them welcomed him into his home, but they knew he was there, didn't they? They had to. Because then they come and say, bring out the man you brought into your house. They all knew what happened. It wasn't as if they were all busy. No, they were watching, and this was their intent now. And now it's intent for homosexuality. What account from Genesis does this remind you of? Lot. Lot with Sodom and Gomorrah. Very similar details. Similar in that the angels went and they were in the city square. Lot welcomed them in. And then the men of the town come and say, Bring, give us those visitors so that we can have sex with them. Those were Canaanites. Sodom and Gomorrah. Those were not God's people. Once again, still very much sinful, still very much condemned by God. But as we look at what is the picture here, God is describing what is the moral depiction of his people with the spiritual description to decline. They are no better. They are no better. In fact, you could probably argue they are worse. They are worse because 
as we see how the response, and now we're going to see that comparison again with Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. But what do we have here? We have the old man's response first. Here, take my daughter. How could you? And then, and his concubine. Which means the Levi was okay with that too. Offering others for sin. The old man says, don't be so vile. Look at yourself. Look at yourself. Don't be so vile. Let's continue reading. Verse 25. But the men would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them. And they raped her and abused her throughout the night. And at dawn they let her go. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door, and lay there until daylight. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house, with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. Keeping that comparison with Sodom and Gomorrah, if you can remember what Lot's response was, it wasn't really not much better. Lot offered his two daughters. His two daughters. And so in a similar way, we see two women being offered here. Now, in the case of Lot, the angels stepped in and stopped anything more from going anything further. They stepped in, they pulled Lot away from the doorway, shut the door, and then they were going to then they end up rescuing Lot and his daughters from Sodom and Gomorrah before God destroyed it. Here, what happens though? When the men didn't listen, remember the offer? The offer was the old man's virgin daughter and the Levite's concubine. Who is given? Maybe even more strike, who is not given? The old man's daughter is not given. He did not give his daughter. He, at some point, no, this is not. And you, you say, oh, it should have been much sooner that you would have said, don't do this. But he wasn't even ready, wasn't ready to give in as far as the extreme nature of the. But the Levite, the Levite did. And once again, you look at that relationship there. The relationship of she was always meant to serve him. That's all she ever was. And so now she was serving him in this moment by removing any threats, any danger that were coming against him. She gave, she, he gave her to them they abused her, they raped her, they left her for dead. Tragic. There's no other way to really say it. it. Vile, appalling, their sin. Remember, these are 
Israelites too. And what they did, homosexuality had very much been a part of Israel. They were not exempt from this sin. And then we look at the Levites' response. As she was being abused throughout the night in pretty much every way, what was he doing? What was that Levite doing? Sleeping. Sleeping. Didn't even keep him up at night. Didn't even keep him up. And so then the next morning, he opens the door and he, oh, it's a new day, ready to go on our way. As if nothing had even happened. And there lay his concubine in the doorway. And what does he say? Get up, let's go. Time to go. Don't, don't make me late. Don't slow us down. Let's go. She died. And it seems as if it didn't even concern him that this was going to happen. That he just opened the door and said, all right, that day is done. We're on the next one. How is he going to respond now that she's dead? How do you think she, he might respond that she's dead? Maybe if you've skimmed ahead in your Bibles, you already know what's going to happen. It's an, kind of an odd thing to see how he responds. Because this Levite, who seemed to have absolutely little care for this woman up to the point... I mean, yes, he went to go get her back from her father's house, but that was mainly because of selfish motives. Little care for her life as an individual. Now, what is he going to do because he doesn't have her anymore? And maybe that's the key. He doesn't have her anymore. He has lost something. And so what is he going to do? Last verses of our chapter. When he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine limb by limb into twelve parts and sent them into all the areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it was saying to one another, Such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Just imagine, we must do something, so speak up. It's a little horrific to think about doing it. But as we've kind of walked through and seen what his relationship has been, still horrific to think that he, as far as doing it, maybe the thoughts in our minds and hearts are, I couldn't possibly do that. But he cuts her up limb by limb. As a Levite, he would have been trained as a butcher for sacrifices. So he would have known what he was doing, at least with that. 
I think we'd still like to think that shouldn't have made it any easier. He should have been in grieving and remorse of what he lost, but really what he lost is all about what he lost, not that her life was over. And so it's all of a sudden now this anger that's built up of this wrong has been done to me. It's been done to me in such a horrible way that this is now something that needs the attention from the whole nation. And so instead of giving her a proper burial, instead of paying respect to her in the one last way he possibly could have, he sends her body parts to all of a sudden cause an uproar among the Israelites to grab their attention. Nothing like this has ever been done. We must do something. We don't know exactly how the sending of the body parts conveyed that message. Perhaps there was something more to it, another note or a retelling of the incident attached as to how people understood. Maybe it actually were to just spread enough about this incident that people knew. But anyways, when they received this from the Levite, they knew the situation. They were made aware. And it lifted up their anger against what had been done. And so maybe that way we could say there was a positive here as we see a lot of negatives on the hearts of the Israelites from this chapter, that also this does trouble them, that they're alarmed, that how could this happen among us? And we're going to have to wait and see what their reaction is. One of the things that we will kind of keep in the back of our minds is they're going to react to what the Levite tells them And we're going to look at, well, what did the Levite actually tell them? Because as we've been seeing all that's going on, it certainly was not just the people of the city of Gibeah who were guilty. Question. People, when people do their own will, that's when you see sin, when they're not following God's will, and that's what we see a lot in this chapter. And so I think then it's also beneficial to start thinking too, all right, as appalling as this is, as much as we'd like to probably then think, yeah, this won't happen among us, this wouldn't happen today, how do we see similar things in our world? It's okay, it's all around us. Do these, maybe first, the kind of marriage situations, do those things affect our world? Yes, maybe not, maybe we aren't in contact as much with people with multiple wives. But as far as that relationship among spouse and the treatment there, 
That certainly is. It's honestly, I'd say, a struggle for every marriage that as God lifts up marriage that you are united and you essentially are serving each other. Well, that's the exact opposite of what's happening here. It's using the other one to serve you. And that's a struggle I think every marriage endures as Satan attacks as our own simple nature tries to put ourselves first. To recognize that our marriage is not about our spouse serving us. No, it's about being united and we serve each other. You look at the abuse that happens. Abuse, whether we're talking from first between the spouses there, yeah, and believers are not exempt from that. They are not exempt from that within their homes. Satan tries to plague them too. We look at the homosexuality that we see among the Israelites. Do Christians struggle with homosexuality? Absolutely they do. Absolutely they do. It's not a worse sin than anything else. We look at all these sins here in this chapter and it's not like one was, was in a greater degree evil than the others. They were all horrible. And I think that's an important thing to recognize too that as we are exposed to people who struggle with homosexuality to recognize, yeah, it's a sin. We're not going to sugarcoat it. But it's also a sin Jesus died for. Forgiven. Anything we do wrong is a sin, and it's to recognize there as well, then, as we look at these. One sin does not fix another sin, does it? Not in any way. It's not, okay, someone did this thing wrong, so now I'll, okay, not a great situation, so I'll do this instead, and that'll fix it, or that'll appease them. No, sin does not get rid of sin. Forgiveness removes the guilt of sin. We look here as well, then, other kind of abuse. Okay, what happened to the woman? That happens in our world. Christians struggle with it. Christians are victims of it, too. And how can we now show love to those who are inflicted? How can we show love to those who are struggling as the one who's inflicting it. The people of Gibeah, at least at this point, they seemingly go on their way. Now the Levites going to raise the nation of Israel to see them take arms. But then we're about to ask that question, was that the right response either? We see that even this Levite here, that after this wrong has been done, looking at our own lives, do we like to play the victim? Do we like to play the victim? 
probably each of us does to some degree. We like to be the one who has been wronged. We like to be the one who, not that it's fun that everyone's out to get us, but you get the attention. That you get other people's sympathy. People feel sorry for you. That Levite was no victim. That Levite was no victim. Oh, there are times where we may legitimately be victims. That the enemies of God are attacking us. But there are plenty of enough other times, probably many more times, where the trouble, the disaster we're experiencing, it's self-induced. That Levite, if not for all the other decisions and choices, sinful ones of that, or maybe not sinful, but sometimes just poor, he wouldn't have been in this situation. Never would have been close to this situation. Just try to backtrack it all. Okay? It's going back when he left his father-in-law's house. Maybe you'd say that wasn't a sinful decision. Okay? Probably not a wise decision, though. That just out of frustration, we're just going to leave. We're leaving now. Yes, it's not the safest time to be leaving, but we're just going to leave now. Perhaps you'd say that maybe he was being a little negligent about the care for his life and for those traveling with him. Backtracking before that, the whole thing of now going to get his concubine back. Well, if he hadn't waited four months, this may not have happened either. But even before that, if he hadn't essentially been in a situation where he'd taken this woman to be his concubine, perhaps she may not have been unfaithful. Once again, not excusing sin. We don't excuse sin. But you see how it just keeps stepping to the next. Because it was never addressed. Repentance was never sought. Forgiveness was never found. And that's where we're going to wrap up today and see as we've been looking at the book of Judges, this is about God's deliverance. This man, this Levite, he had a problem, lots of problems. Lots of the other Israelites that he interacted with had problems too. Lots of sin. There was no deliverance to be found by any one of them and what they did. The spiritual situation of Israel really is not that much different than the spiritual situation we are in. It may look different. It may not be a specific issue of marriage. It could be an issue of substance abuse. It could be an issue of, with children. It could be many different forms. But the issues that we have with sin when we seek to serve ourselves, seeks to solve things ourselves, we're in the same boat. And deliverance comes from the Lord. Deliverance comes from the Lord. And that's what he's going to show as we'll continue next time and looking at Judges chapter 20. We'll get to see how the nation of Israel responds to this tragedy 
this appalling deed, this thing that has never been done before in the nation of Israel. Let's close with prayer. Gracious Lord, show us the error of our ways. Enlighten our hearts to the self-serving sin that is within so that we may flee from it, that we may flee to you to find forgiveness, to find the strength in repentance to now walk in your ways, to not just try to look past flaws or put band-aids on problems, but to rely on you alone for deliverance for the actual problem we have, which often is our own sinful self. The problem that you have freed us from through your son Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. That's it for this time. We'll see you next week looking at Judges 20.